Hi, Smith and Louie. Uh, my name's Charles. I have a question about Russia that I haven't been able to pick up by osmosis from consuming Russia-related things here in the U.S. What exactly is the difference between the police and the militia? I've used one word or another, and Russian people I've talked to have said, oh, no, it's the other thing, and I don't know what the difference is. Well, thanks for making a great podcast. I enjoy it every time, and bye. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Yeah. Charlie. Nah. I no. Don't assume Charles. that he goes by Charlie, you know? No, never assume a nickname. Never assume yeah. a nickname. That's good order of business. Okay, so you want to know the difference between militia and polizia or militionaire, which is like a person, policeman, right? And polizeski. I'm going to answer your question in detail, but first, before I answer your question, I'm going to allow a citizen of Lobnia answer your question. <laughs> yeah, a citizen that got cut from the final episode. From our yeah, from our couple episodes ago when we covered the pro the trash protest um, happening in the suburbs of Moscow, and this is one of the people I talked to at the protest in Lobnia. But yeah, she didn't make the cut because she mostly didn't talk about the protest. <laughs> talked about other random theories she has, including the difference between militia and polizia. <laughs> I'm just going to translate her directly, okay? Okay. So unfortunately, she um, the first word she says is militia, and it got cut off because she was telling me to turn the mic on and off constantly because she didn't, <laughs> she was afraid of being arrested. So she'd be like, turn it off, turn it on. So I didn't get that first word. But what she says, if we include that word, is the militia are those who protect the people, narod, the people. And the polizeski are those who protect the people in power. Well, there you have it, Charles. Goodbye. <laughs> There's nothing else that you could possibly <laughs> want to know from that. The difference, okay, the difference is it's just two different names that relate to two different time periods. The police force in Russia was called the militia up until 2011. Mm -hmm. And since 2011, it's, it's been renamed and called polizia, which sounds more like police to us. And militia does come from the same like Latin Greek root for militia. And polizeski is, comes from the root that we used also for police Latin as well. It's not just a renaming, basically. It's not just like, oh, we decided to rename it. So this was when Medvedev was president. It was his, uh, at least he announced the initiative. So it like felt like it was from him. Um, and it wasn't just about, oh, we're naming them something different. It was a whole reform, police reform that went into place. Uh, I think arguably like people would say maybe not that much changed or something like that. But uh, there was like a huge, a large amount of people were fired. There were salary increases, but decrease in the number of people working. But there were like a whole new budget came through, like new uniforms and all this stuff. And the point that our dear friend Nastya a contributor, one would say, made about this this big shift in 2011 was that, yeah, all this stuff was changed, but a lot of people see it as this excuse for basically dumping a bunch of money into one part of the government and then being able to take off 
whatever part like whatever percentage that people take off when they steal money because you're just like well we need we, we just renamed everyone and we just passed this new law and we just did all this stuff so we need like new uniforms new cars new you know like training sessions right because mm-hmm. like there's all this new stuff but then all the budget that gets allocated to that there's going to be somebody taking from that i mean if we if we believe navalny right. <laughs> which we do so, but yeah, mil- mil- militionaire, that, that word actually is, uh, was first introduced after the February Revolution. So it was, it's basically like associated with a Soviet name. So, but because it lasted till 2011, it is confusing. And like sometimes you hear people still say militionaire, especially older people, because like it hasn't been that long. But for all intents and purposes, it's the police force, you know, like it's not like two different bodies or something like that. Yeah. Oh, good question, Charles. Yeah. This is the meat of the podcast. Have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 From Brooklyn and St. Petersburg, this is She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm Lily. A couple of weeks ago, as you know, I went to this talk at Columbia, and the title of the talk was called Invisible Communities, Non-Existent Towns, Russia Beyond the Media's Eye. And it was a conversation between Yelena Kostichenko and Miriam Elder. And the setup was like Miriam's asking the questions and Yelena is answering them. And Miriam Elder is the world editor at BuzzFeed. Just for reference, you'll hear her voice maybe oh, a few Miriam, times. Oh, Miriam, we know uh, her. But, oh, we know Miriam. Yeah, I briefly introduced myself to her, but she was... Did she remember who you were? Yeah. Oh, that's good. What a good memory. She must eat gingo lobos or whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm trying she to say. She sure does. Yeah, whatever Grace was trying to shove down her yeah. But okay, but yeah, Yelena. So Yelena is a reporter for Novaya Gazeta, and you know what Novaya Gazeta is, obviously, but. For our dear listeners who do not know, Novaya Gazeta has been around since the early 90s. It's one of the few independent investigative papers in Russia, and they cover a lot of different things. They did a lot of reporting on the Ukrainian crisis, and actually Yelena was one of the reporters that went to eastern Ukraine a couple of years ago and talked to Russian soldiers there while the Russian government was still sort of vehemently denying its presence there. Um, They also at one point had several reporters in Chechnya at the height of the pogroms or whatever you want to call that. Um, And they've covered a lot of different things that you'll hear more in detail about. Somebody calls them pogroms? That's the word Miriam used, so that's what I'm using. I don't know what a better word for it is, like a mini genocide. I don't know. Why did I? I thought pogroms were Jewish. No. I think it is actually just a general term, but people associate it with the Jews in the same way that people associate Holocaust with Jews. Well, what's the etymology of the Holocaust? Okay, let's not get into this. Moving yeah, on. It's not, it's not part of it. Moving on. You get, you get the point. The reason Yelena is at Columbia currently is she's the 
currently the Paul Klebnikov Russian Civil Society Fellow. I'm just going to quote real quickly from Columbia's site as to what this is. The fellowship helps to bring to the Harriman Institute, which is like the Eurasian Studies Department at Columbia, highly qualified Russian journalists and civil society professionals who are known for their independence, integrity, and objectivity. The Institute arranges an extensive visit with experts, policymakers, and professionals in New York to benefit the fellows and their work in Russia. Okay, so, but about the talk, I, I really liked it a lot, which I think I kind of told you afterwards, but I liked it so much that I, that I wanted to use it for this episode. So I don't know. I think that like everybody in the audience was like pretty wooed by Yelena, as was I. And she's one of those people who's obviously very smart and also matter of fact. And I think that'll kind of become apparent as to what I mean by that. And then also there's the one other thing is like there's something about English being her second language where she'll kind of turn phrases awkwardly, but it makes her sound like smart and original. You know that? Yeah, definitely. 100%. I have multiple friends like that. Yeah, where you're like, you're so wise. I've never thought of it Or I just like like the way, it's not necessarily um, smarter sounding to me, but like, like, I like the way like Igor, for example, like, Yegor, Igor, like how he speaks. It's like weird. It's it's like not... The arrangement of the words is like more interesting. Yeah. Before we get started, I just want to thank the Harriman Institute for giving us this audio to use. So thank you very much. And in particular, thank you to Masha Udenseva-Brenner and Alex Cooley, who's the director director of the Harriman Institute. Okay, so, so just to introduce this first excerpt, I want to give you a little background of what the two had been talking about. And Yelena had been describing this pretty awful event that happened in a city or town called Kushovskaya, uh, wherein 12 people were brutally murdered. And state TV happened to be in the town filming a more uplifting story at the time that this took place. And so they ended up airing a piece about the murders as well. And Miriam basically asked, like, do you think that people, specifically Western people, have a misunderstanding of how Russian censorship works? Yeah, there is a misunderstanding about censorship in Russia. Like, basically, like, Western people saw, like, Kremlin controlled everything by themselves. Like, Putin almost personally called the chief editor and said, don't publish that. But uh, the most uh, powerful censorship in Russia is self-censorship. It's just a huge thing. I barely can describe that. I mean, in Russia, we have, like, Sentence that can't be really translated in English. Uh, it's like, may, ha- may happen something, or kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's like, then journalists start to thinking about writing the story. He just picked the topic and he looked like it and like, mm, I better not to do that. It's like, may happen something and if you ask him what can happen he will say i don't know but you know maybe something and the same thing with editors and the same thing with chief editors it's not like you know like total censorship covering all the country because it's impossible you know but journalism actually is very corrupted as well and people are afraid of something what we really don't know, and it's actually big issue. 
and and after after this miriam also asked her like is this a feeling that you have this like something might happen feeling and elena was like not really i don't have fear before i publish a story she was like i think it's just biological that i don't have fear and this biological thing comes up different times throughout the conversation one thing i really liked about elena was kind of her insistence insistence that at least for her journalism doesn't have a higher mission miriam asks her what she hopes to achieve like what does she hope to change when she writes a story mm, you know i'm just like the process <laughs> yeah i like my work with said um i talk with a lot of american journalists and of course they have like it's more easy to work than you have such motivation to change things but in russia it's not working like that you know like my newspaper, they, my colleague called me like, you're a very effective journalist, you change things. But actually, once I just uh, sat and counted how many things changes, and I found that I have like proper, just proper response uh, from authorities or from some kind of people in charge, it's like it's like one of twenty five of my articles, and something changes it and it may be bad changes, not only good one. It's like one of fifty articles, so you can imagine like I'm writing no more than fifty articles per year, and like once per year something changes, so it's not really huge motivation uh and but I never believed that like journalism is a fourth power, like at least in Russia. We are not. We just deliver information and it's not like very far from food delivery, you know, then you want some sushi, you call some guys and bring me some. So it spreads the same. I mean we just should fix uh, like you know uh write about what's going on around us and tell the people stories, that's it. Sushi, I, that was a good choice. Re our other sushi conversation. <laughs> Actually, Nasu just said that today. We like <laughs> we were in like a um, we we're coming back from Peterhof, which is like you know a little bit outside the city. It's where like the uh, Mars Versailles of Russia is, and like past a giant sushi restaurant in the middle of like nothing, like a field. <laughs> and she was just like, I feel like sushi is like our national food. <laughs> Yeah, there is there is something about Russians and sushi. Yeah, and too bad it's not even like good sushi, but whatever. It's not terrible. I, I don't know. Like the stuff we had in Moscow was totally fine. Oh yeah, that's like that's okay. If you think that's fine, then okay, okay, Smith. But yeah, it's it's sort of interesting because the this insistence about mission, like both. So there was an opportunity for people in the audience to ask questions, and then also what Miriam was asking. This insistence that like journalism has some sort of higher mission popped up throughout the talk, and. I think it, it is in part because the things Yelena chooses to cover are like tragedies and like situations that aren't so nice. And you kind of expect or assume that those people who choose to cover those things are altruistic in like a really intense way. And and I'm not saying she's not altruistic or empathetic because um, I think that she is, um, but more that she's just super honest about how something drives her to cover those stories, but not to expect a particularly good outcome, which I think she's which she clear about. But it. she can't, like, she doesn't analyze back. Yeah, I see. She doesn't explain, like, oh, I want to do this because I want to help X. And Yeah, which which I appreciate because yeah. 
you know, this is this is actually like a little bit of a thing that one of the people on the street that we interviewed for the Lennon episode said. But like he was like, you know, sometimes I'm interested in analyzing people's motives, but also like the fact that like you're driven to talk to people on the street or they're driven to put a Lennon statue up on top of a building like to retroactively apply a reason to that is like annoying and useless. And that's like kind of what she's insisting upon. Like she wants to go to Eastern Ukraine and talk to people and like you don't need to put like some sort of altruistic though, reason on top of though that. I rem- like I remember from the Lennon conversation that he he was like he was being like well everyone has a motivation for something I just don't know yeah. what it is like you have a motivation for standing here as well and that was funny that was like, <laughs> good point sir I guess the counter to this is like nobody nobody's gonna like ask people who like do listicles for BuzzFeed like what their mission is you know but because Yelena covers these things that need like light shown on them or whatever quote unquote people expect there to be some higher mission it's still only one way to real know things you go on the ground to talk with people you try to figure out what's going on and like i tried to explain but it's also not easy it's also like a thing what western people are really hard to understand about russia we don't have like nation like as you have. We have a branch of clusters of people who really don't communicate with each other, who really don't know about each other. And some of these clusters are in media and some of these clusters just out of media. So some of creepy photos was like producing from time to time here. It's uh, our work about drug addict people. We have a new drug type called crocodile, like alligator or crocodile, I don't know how to translate. Uh, It's uh, like self-made drug. And it's a huge problem because, like, during police stopped the green traffic in our cities, lots of green addict people without any help, you know, to get off their addiction, they start to use that drug. And that drug uh, uh, causes death, like, in two or three years after you start to do that. And uh, some of the ingredients of a drug you can buy just in drugstore. And uh, when our uh, politicians decide to stop like free buying of that kind of drug, uh, and it was a hu- it had huge media coverage, but nobody decided to talk with that people, because you know we don't have one drug addicts in our media. I mean, we want them out of our media. We will decide about their lives by our own, and this is a typical thing. You know, uh, in public discussion, nobody applied to people uh, who actually are in that situation. So, like, crowd prostitutes or social orphans or deaf people or jack addict or even policemen. Because uh, I was working, like, undercover in a police station just to figure out what's going on there. Because there were so many talks about reforming our police. But no, like usual regular police guys participated in that. Like, people are just out of uh, media discussion. And here's the huge problem. And this is, like, more, like, problem of, like, journalists' mind. Because it's so... 
I even cannot call it old-fashioned, but I think the roots are in Soviet Union. Because in Soviet Union, there were only two types of people in the media. It's like a good example, like good worker, nice mother, incredible scientist, or like a bad example. Like, you know, like lazy person, like enemy of the state, I don't know, such kind of thing. But there was no like middle. And uh, when Perestroika goes, people start, uh, journalists start to write about like usual people, and it was a huge progress. But right now, maybe because propaganda use, uh, our propaganda uses Soviet uh, stereotypes a lot, journalists just feel themselves uncomfortable, uncomfortable to write about such kind of people, you know? And here's a huge problem because I don't. I told before I don't believe like in mission of journalism, but I think if this mission is exist, um, it's about like to tell people about each other and to build like new connections, new ties between people. So I hope um, that I do it not bad. I do my best at least. Miriam asks her about her reporting in Chechnya and in particular how the process of talking to people in these fragile states happened. It's hard to explain how it's happened. I mean, I can try. Uh, this case was opened up by Elena Milashna. She's my, like, I can't even describe how cool she is. Um... Like then I work uh, like for my 12 or 13, I suppose 14 years in Nova Gazeta, we got like four people murdered. And two of them uh, were working in Chechnya, like Anna Politkovska and Natalia Stimirova. And so after Politkovska was murdered, uh, Stimirova took her place. And after she was murdered, Lena took her place. So, like, I'm, I worry about her, like, every day. And she does incredible work there. She has so many sources and so many, some huge respect from Chichan people. So, how it happened? Uh, it's also about, like, media coverage. It was very fortunate. Uh, we have a huge, uh, like the hugest one LGBT organization in Russia called, to compare with your LGBT organizations is small, of course. It's called LGBTnet. And one of the leaders of that organization, Zygir uh he got a strange message in like Facebook, Russian Facebook called to contact from an anonymous guy who said like, uh, you know, like gays in Chechnya are murdering right now by police, by Kadyrov people. It's massacre. And he asked some of his contacts and he said, no, 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 no contact. Uh, so he called Milashina because actually she's only one Russian journalist who's working in Chechnya right now. It's true. So she started to call her sources. She called like 10 or 15 sources and all of them proved that information. So she published an article. 
And at the same time, LGBTNet opened a hotline for people who want to be evacuated from Chechnya, LGBT people. Uh, and then my colleague Irina Gordienko published another article, and then like 25,000 of uh, religious people had a meeting in the uh, main mosque in Grozny, uh, capital of Chechnya, and said like, basically, you're going to be punished for that. Uh, so I decided to join that moment because, you know, then we have a danger, somebody, some staff person in danger. It means that, like, lots of people should uh, jump in because, like, spread is, you know, like, mm, became wider and less for each of us. So I called... Uh, I met with LGBT net people and asked them, like, can they help me with interviewing these guys? And they said they will ask them, because lots of them actually just ran away after tortures, and they luckily survived, and it wasn't like they were, like, very cool about talking their, uh, about the experience. So they asked everybody, and everybody said no. And so I asked them to ask them again, like in one day later. And they asked them again, and one guy told me, like, I told, like, okay, just bring her to my place, and I look at her and I'll decide. Uh, he looked at me and said yes immediately. And I was wondering why so, but when I found that, like, everybody. I mean, Kadyrov people killed people across all the Russia. I mean, so they were waiting like Kadyrov people gonna go for them. And then they see my green hairs, they, it's like, obviously I'm not from Kadyrov. Uh, and we talked like three hours, like on the record, and then like two more hours over record. And he is just very simple guy, just very simple looking pretty similar to my friends. And then I start to describe this interview. I got like a heart attack, first time in my life. And when it's happened, I, I mean, my sister fortunately be near me and she bring some medicine, so I got okay. But uh, then I start thinking like, how it's happened and why it's happened with me because I walked in the wars and I saw so many creepy things and heard so many creepy things but when I realized that when I started thinking when it's happened in what moment of interview this happened and I found that it's happened not then he described how they use electricity to torture him you know to put clamors on his ears and put electricity through his head not at that moment but in the moment, then he started to tell me, like, you know, I never have had something against my republic and my authorities. I always try to be useful. I pay taxes and I clean the streets as a volunteer. I'm really not against authorities. And in that moment, I got my heart attack. Because, you know, then you read in some historical books and, like, everybody can... Any personality can be smashed like a piece of paper. It's just like, you know, historical thing. But then you just sit with guy and he tell you that. And I mean, like 
half a year before that, I interviewed Nadia Murad Basitakh, this Yazidian girl who was a sex slave of ISIS. She was multiply raped and, you know, sold from person to person, and all her family was murdered brutally. And, yeah, it's maybe pretty similar, but we talked on Kumanji. It's like uh, uh, Yazidi language. It wasn't on Russian. And then I realized that it's, like, you know, happened in my country. And about media coverage as well. Some of our colleagues joined us in that investigation. And actually, my text was published not in Nova, but in Medusa. And I'm really thankful for them that they decided to, you know, split the danger with us. It's cool. But at the same time, most oppositional or so-called oppositional uh, media covered uh, the attack on Navalny. You know, some people spread some liquid on his eye and he had some problems with his eye after. I mean, yeah, it's terrible as well, but it's not such terrible as much mass murder of like group of people. And so it's like that, because nobody actually likes to write about Chechnya. It's too dangerous and it's too hard to work there, because like, like all journalists who worked in Chechnya are murdered or got some other problems, so it's better to stay away from there. The personality being smashed like a piece of paper, uh, nice turn of phrase. I didn't catch like why she brings up the sex slave. Yeah, the reason she's bringing it up is she's like saying like, oh, I had this panic attack or anxiety attack or whatever it was, um, some sort of physiological reaction to this man in Chechnya. And then she's saying, you know, I've had I've interviewed people who have been in similarly horrible situations. Like I interviewed this girl who was a sex slave to ISIS and like her whole family was brutally murdered. And I didn't have a panic attack when I was interviewing her. And she's saying like, you know, I, at this point, I, like, realized that this was happening in, like, my country and my language. And the fact that he was, like, you know, I don't have any a problem with authority. Like, I volunteer every day. It's, like, that moment where it, I guess to her, it felt, like, really intensely Russian. And that caused her to have an anxiety attack. Oh, because she, oh, she wasn't hearing, like, a translator say it from this person from ISIS who wasn't Russian. Right, okay. Oh, okay, I get it, I get yeah. it. Sorry, that was a little slow on the uptake. Okay, so then they opened the floor to questions. And Did you ask a question? No. And a, a woman asks a question about civil society because, you know, she's the civil society fellow. There's like this ethos of civil society. Whatever that means. Yeah, and and in particular, this woman mentions Kemerova and says like, and it asks basically the question, do tragedies that involve children provide a like particular point around which civil society can grow in Russia. And she uses at some point the phrase, you're describing a country with no empathy. Who says that? The woman asking the question. And what? I, yeah, so I think this, I couldn't find it when I listened back to it, but I think this phrasing came from something Yelena had said. I don't think she said something so harsh as like, you know, it's really a country without empathy, but she's talking about the fact that people don't know about each other in Russia and she's describing all these different tragedies. And I do think that like the term empathy and like lack of empathy did come up at some point in the talk. So this wasn't like totally out of left field, but this woman like, you know, used a kind of harsh phrase. I don't know. 
And in part, Yelena answers the question by talking about Igor Vostrikov. Do you, do you want to um, summarize real quick for the listeners who Vostrikov is, if they've forgotten? Okay, so Vostrikov is a, like a resident of Kemerovo where this horrible fire took place the end of last month. And he's, he is a person who lost his entire family in that fire. His sister, his wife, and his three children. And post this like horrible trauma directly after, he became this kind of like community figure that was getting a lot of attention in media. I would say that. Yeah. Okay. So here's here's Yelena talking about him. You said you told about Kemerova tragedy. Yeah, it's an incredible thing. It just happened like a few weeks ago and traumatized me a lot actually. Like sixty four people were burned alive in a movie theater in Kemerova because uh, doors were closed. Uh, but and people felt a lot of you know, uh, empathy to that case and they wanted to send money to these people and so on and so on. A lot of our political opposition used that case to prove like our authorities are unable to run the country and it really looks like because, you know, uh, like fire emergency exit was closed and like fire emergency system wasn't working and just everything happened because the like, system wasn't just system just failed you know and the parents of children who died there and there are a lot of kids there more than half and uh, these parents came to the men's square of our city to ask about answers truth and so on and so on and guy who ran that like meeting was a guy who lost three his kids his wife and his sister there his surname is Vostrikov and our oppositional uh, movement started to make him as a hero, you know, hero of resistance. Like, he lost everything, he shouldn't felt fear or something like that. But then, like, after a few days, under huge pressure of local authorities, he started to tell things like, uh, you know, it's not about authorities. It's all about, like, some other things. Like, we should improve our uh, emergency guards and so on and so on. And people start, as they, you know, uh, harassed them, like, a few uh, days ago, they start to blame him. Like, you're a traitor. You trait your family. Sorrow's not looking like that. You should feel sorrow right now. You should feel anger right now. So about that kind of sympathy, it's not really deep. I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately. This idea of Russia lacking em- empathy comes up again from a, somebody else in the audience. Lacking empathy like with each other, that's the theme? Yeah, yeah within. So another woman asked sort of a similar question, which can kind of be summed up like you're describing a country with no empathy. And, and she uses that. I'm quoting. So where do you find hope? And and this time, Yelena pushes back a little bit more against this like idea that Russia is lacking empathy. On the one hand, I can't believe that people have like the audacity to ask questions like that. Like, where do you find hope? I just want to like smack them. But on the other hand, it's like, well, then they provide this opportunity for a smart person who has, you know, like a lot of things to say to say something. But you know what I mean? That's like when in those like Q&A sessions, sometimes I'm like, are you out of your goddamn mind? Like what level of hubris do you have that you think you can say these yeah, things? Yeah, I mean, I want to be fair because I know that like 
that phrase, like you're describing a country with no empathy, like really sounds ridiculous and crazy. And I think the first woman who said it, it like just sort of slipped out and I don't think she necessarily meant it. And then like the second woman was like sort of parroting her. And actually, I think the second woman was Russian. So like, and she spoke a lot more, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. So like none of these people were like dummies or whatever. No, 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 but it's not dummies. But you you know how some people who ask questions, like to ask a question, even the second part, like, where do you find hope? (laughs) Yeah, that's quoting her. (laughs) too. That's like, like, what are you talking about? Like, where do you find hope? Anyway, it's like how we never ask questions at those question and answer things like we're too good for it or something yeah. but like yeah. okay somebody has to ask the goddamn questions because <laughs> yeah. otherwise there will be no answers yeah <laughs> it's true i don't know it's kind of natural optimism i guess like biological things so uh i don't really see that it's gonna get well or something like that um but I'm not analytic, actually. I'm like a reporter. I cannot see things like systematically. I can just see stories, tell stories. It's almost, let's say, what I can. Uh, but at the same time, I see a lot of mutual help and sometimes even sacrifice and like lots of efforts of lots of people to get things better but it always seems so tiny you know what i mean like i mean the main mistake as i see it the main mistake of us talk uh, talking about like russia uh, it's like you know here i'm like three weeks meeting with like chief editors and like staff reporters from all of US media based in New York and like everybody is so anxious about Russia and I get it I mean you should be but uh, you sh- uh, but lots of people don't see that we are not Soviet Union anymore we are not so like powerful state you know really threatening the world around us and like uh, with huge amount of repression and oppression and such kind of thing. Nope. We're kind of post-apocalyptic place. Like after Soviet Union fell, like nothing really appears on that place. And lots of typical state institution, like elections, parliament, like agencies, police, court system are not really existing. I'm sorry. I mean, uh, it's kind of rituals. Do you know that the percentage of like innocent uh, court verdict is less than half a percent? I mean, it's not really court system, is it? Uh, and people in Russia were really, you said, totally right. They're really struggling to survive most of people. And without mutual assistance, it's impossible. So you help people, because tomorrow they're going to help you. I reported from the village uh, called Bukhalova. It's definitely between Moscow and St. Petersburg. It's a small village. And there are no infrastructure in that. And there are no roads around that. Just only one sign of civilization. Uh, is like once a few years, like then election starts, they bring this box for, you know, for votes. 
that's it. So, huh? Vukhalova, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but there is a railroad near. So then somebody gets real sick. Uh, they put uh, the guy or girl in the truck, you know, for fertilizer truck, like they call the city truck, uh, and bring the guy to the station and put it in the uh, next train uh, till the next city, you know. Uh, and sometimes you just cannot move the person because, I don't know, they got stroke or something. So they just call the doctors and doctors tell what they should do, you know. So And it's between our two capitals. It's not like far Siberia, far north or far east. It's just between two capitals. And things working like that, if you will not put this shitty truck to the station for somebody, they will not put it for you tomorrow. So they help each other. So... And it's very strange and fascinating to observe, you know, all the lack of empathy, but the same, you know, really bright examples of human spirit, mutual assistance, and at the same time, like violence, aggression, and some other Russian issues. It's all together. So that's why it's really dangerous to simplify it. So that's why I'm trying to explain things. The last segment that I'm going to play is, is from, is Yelena answering a question from a woman who's basically saying like, like, you know, there's all these things that are wrong with Russia. Like, what is the way that we can overcome this? Like, is it fear that needs to be overcome? Is it propaganda? Is it historical habit? Is there some sort of like intrinsic dislike for democracy within Russian society? Like what needs to change? I don't think that media should, you know, correct people's mindset or their behavior. We are not the teachers and I'm definitely not smarter than my readers. You know, when I was 20... I think I know how what's the right way to live, you know. Like and I thought like people who are not living like my way, they're just I don't know, don't have opportunity or maybe they're too covered and some kind of now I understand that there is no right way to live life and I have no right to tell people how we should think, how we should live what we should do, or something like that. I can only provide information. It's what I'm pretty good in that. Other things, it's actually like not my duty, and I don't feel I have right for that. And I don't really think that Russians are very different from Americans. We have very different circumstances, but people are the same. Definitely. And if uh, you became in the same situation, in the same circumstances, nobody knows how would you behave, actually. So I think the real thing what we should change is exactly like governmental structure. We need new president. We need like working court system. We need the parliament. Uh, we need like real... Uh, like authorities take real responsibility for what they are doing. And we need more social support, definitely. And this huge difference uh, between uh, income, 
U.S. also had that. You know, uh, here uh, I was visiting like ASL classes for undocumented people here in New York. And uh, we were studying by uh, American textbook. It's like a Cambridge textbook, very fancy one. And there was a topic there, how to cope with stress. And there were some examples there, kind of, um, like, this girl was late on her work, and her boss was too angry on her, and then he went to have a driver uh, license exam, and she was felt so crazy, terrible. And so her friend gave her advice, how to cope with stress, deep breathing, meditation, and positive thinking. Uh, then our teacher asked us to tell our own examples and we've had to cope with stress. And one girl just stand up and said, you know, last time when I felt myself uh, under stress is when I was raped. Another guy stand up and said, like, uh, I feel myself uh, in stress because I have two jobs and it takes like 16 hours per day and rest of hours I'm just sleeping and I don't, really, I don't really know how long I can work like that to survive. Another guy stand up and say, you know, I'm here but I'm a family in Colombia and there is an arc of war in my town and every evening then I call them, I don't really know are they alive or dead. And after that, uh, I had a very nice dinner with the mother of my friend in a very fancy place in the middle of a town. There was like a celebration of pork, like pork festival. And it was very cool. I mean, like 50 people inside the room. Like, not all of them are white. Like, we are, like there were like three color people, but all of other are white. In jewelries. And we very nice talks about like, you know, my daughter in Oxford felt herself so stressed, so I got some money for her for uh, psychotherapy or some kind of. It's a huge disadvantage in your country. And there is a lack of sympathy in your country as well. And lack of empathy in your country as well. So I don't think that like there is a huge difference between our people and our people has like a wrong mindset and wrong behavior, and we should, should you know tell them how to behave properly, and then things gonna become correct. They're not gonna become correct without parliament, without court system, without police, without free media, and such kind of boring things as like normal election. Yeah. I think the thing that stood out to me the most about this last clip is her saying in the beginning that like, or her just saying that we're all the same. Like it's, it's the circumstances that are different, but you know, Russians and Americans are more similar than, than different. So it's one of those things where like, it's like she's an authoritative person who has a lot of like, you know, Qualif she's qual qualified to, you know, make statements like that, I guess, um, more than just relatively qualified. So it's like when she's saying a statement like that, it like doesn't bother me that much. But I just like personally in my in my day to day life in St. Petersburg have interact with that like construction a lot of either like people saying Americans and Russians are like really the same or all people are the same you know that kind of what is that called like a platitude yeah. or something or on the other hand people asking me what makes Russians and Americans different or are they different like what makes them different and 
obviously when people ask me what makes them different, I'm not like going to answer, I'm not answering on a sort of like level of like, like a moralistic level. Yeah. Or something other than circumstances. The only thing that could make them different is their, you know, behavior given their circumstances. So it's sort of not the Slavic brain. No. <laughs> so it, so like, yeah, so that's the sort of thing. That's the reason that like saying that we're all the same is kind of like, I see why it's powerful, but it also is kind of pointless because it's like, okay, but you do have different circumstances and different behaviors. And that's, so the only, you know, like, it's only justified because of the nature of the question, which is like, what do you want to change? And she's just saying, I don't want to change the people, you know, at their core, like their soul or whatever, right? Like that. So, and she's also setting it up to be, to like tell that anecdote, which is like, you're not, you're not like a you pure have American. Too. Yeah. Like these problems exist in their same state, like over and over again, regardless of like what the language of the country is. But yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Like I, yeah. And I, again, like I'm not, I'm not so turned off by it given the whole context and her and who she is and everything. And yeah, like what the context, what, it, what that statement was part of. But of course, when Russians like generally say that, like, we're all the same. I'm just like, <laughs> because I, 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 because I find it to be mostly useless or I find it to be excusing for certain behaviors. Like it's a way to sort of like excuse inact in activism or not talking about issues because it's like, well, why talk about that? Like everyone, you know, like why, why point that out? If like, we're all essentially the same or something like that, you know what I mean? Like why talk about rights? Right. Well, I mean, she, the like way she, she's bringing it up specifically in the context of like America versus Russia, and because there is that like ongoing like Russians are biologically predisposed to do certain nefarious things, like that's kind of I feel like what she's referencing, and less so that like oh this individual person is like this other individual. Well, yeah, person. no, no, I know, and so am I, and so are the people I'm talking about. They're like referencing generally like russia and another and country like Hell. the west and i do and i did i do and i did do you see what i'm saying like how it can be used to sort of like not talk about issues yeah yeah but actually it's it really it continues to astound me how people see from inside their whatever socioeconomic bubble so when i was home in the states i, I had this interaction with a person who is upper middle class white new york person okay and they were like, you know, they found out that I live in Russia. And then they were like making all these general statements about Russians immediately offering me, you know, volunteering information to me about like how Russians are different from Americans. Explain. Give an example. Okay. Okay. So they paraphrase what they said with like their experience because they, they are slightly like aware that like they should say that it's their experience and not in general. So they were like, in my experience of Russians, they're just so much more, um, they, they really need to like show, they really show their status more physically and visually, like the, like the whole women wearing really fancy outfits and like high heels that was brought up. And so this person was like, in my experience of Russians in America, like, first of all, who knows what these, who this person met and like in what context, but like they haven't been to Russia before. And they're like talking about these like status symbols. Then they say, in comparison to those people, they say, but we just don't do that. I just, and it's really interesting. I just noticed we don't do that. Like, you know, we don't like, uh, we're all an agendered smocks. I just, wait, 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 let me just, let me just get this out because it got, I was just like, I can't deal with you. And of course, I didn't like respond 
in a real way because I was amongst in company and it would have been um, embarrassing and rude for them. So, but this person was just being like, we don't do that. We don't show off. And that like, it's, isn't that interesting that like, that's just something about Russians that I've noticed that little tidbit. (laughs) And like, also it's just kind of like you have, you are really like really stuck in your own world that like, that you decide to tell me that it's like, what are you even talking about? I live there. Like, why don't you just ask me something instead of like, or don't ask me actually just shut up, but like volunteering your stupid observations. That's like a classic problem where somebody's like finds out that another person knows a lot about a thing and then their impulse rather than to ask questions is to tell. Right. They're like, oh, well, I have an idea about that thing that you know about. I once had a client and she had a Russian great grandfather and she wore very high heels. Right. So, so, and like this is this is a person who is of the upper middle class white type that wears very um you know kind of like casual like so not showy clothes but that could be ridiculously expensive yeah. new agey kind of comfortable vibes middle-aged person and i immediately was just like we're literally in a four million dollar house right now like in my head I was just like I live first of all I live in like the one of the most expensive neighborhoods in the country I mean not neighborhoods like areas counties like in the country I mean it's not like San Francisco I'm not I don't think but like still and we're talking about people who live in huge houses that cost like so much money or shitty houses that cost so much money that drive Priuses, which are extremely expensive cars, but they're not, they are status symbols, but they're not read as status symbols the way like a, you know, fucking what? Lamborghini. Lamborghini. Yeah, <laughs> Lamborghini or like even a Mercedes or something. I don't even know. Is Mercedes like old? I don't know what the status things are, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was just like, thinking of all the signals that that person was sending with their existence and how they thought that they were just a neutral person who doesn't send signals and that they think, and then I was like, but you also said we, so you didn't say like we upper middle class white Americans, you said we like Americans, which means you just don't think that other Americans who drive really fancy cars, have really fancy clothes, have really fancy watches that are status symbols of money. Those people are not real. They're not you. We, they're not, like, as in when she says we, she doesn't mean yeah, those people? she said she we as in Americans people. versus Russians. But when she said we, she just cut out all the people who are in America who do have status symbols that are really, like, what she's talking about, sort of, like, notably visual or, uh, like, just, like, prominent, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, brands. I, mean, I guess in those sorts of situations, I'm hesitant to read too much into it because I feel more what happens is, like, she... He, heard that you live in Russia and she just like had this half-baked idea in her head and she said it and like if you had pushed her on it she probably would have realized she was wrong I don't think that she would yeah yeah yeah. I mean I think that she I'm just commenting on the amount like I'm commenting on what Elena was also commenting on which is the amount that people have their heads up their asses have their heads up their asses and are like it's not just that there's a huge divide between the people sitting in the ASL class and the people celebrating pork and like talking about their kids in college like it's not just that there's a divide, it's that the people don't think about the fact that there's a divide regularly enough for that divide to ever, like, really matter to them. Like, I'm not saying <laughs> we're, like, amazing angels who do think about that, but, like, really, this person just, like, doesn't think about that. Yeah, and, and in, in this ever. particular 
case that you're saying like it's not even a bad thing you had a desire a divide and like socioeconomic it's like just a divide between reality and herself because like she doesn't even view her signals as signals well yeah so there's that aspect but then there's also the aspect that she just like is it's like as though she's blind she lives in the neighborhood she lives in she sees the car she sees and what she like has never seen a status car like are you kidding me yeah. But that's just that play, that's just a thing that's like an issue domestically that's just playing out across cultures the same way that the exact same way that Elena was like narrating how she's narrating how that um plays out across cultures because Americans like you know sitting in this Columbia lecture will be like, "Well, well, how do you deal over there with all your issues?" <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's the episode. Thanks for listening. As always, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Telegram, Arena at She's in Russia. Give us a call and leave a message like Charles did at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six or on Skype at She's in Russia and leave a message and we may play it on the show. Also, head over to the Harriman Institute and check out their website. If you're based in New York, they have weekly seminars that are quite good. So and are free to attend as far as I can tell and we will see you next week Smith Roscomnadzor <laughs> more like Smith Sensorman <laughs> that's good